welcome to PX41 today. This podcast is supported by Maddox Lawyers, the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. I'm Jess Noonan, and as always, I'm joined by Peter Jewell and our audio engineer, Zach Wills-Allen. Today, we're interviewing David Bissell, an associate professor at Melbourne Uni and a fellow at the Australian Research Council in the School of Geography. David's research area is primarily around mobility, with recent and forthcoming research focusing on the impact of commuting on cities, how mobile working practices are reshaping the home, and how new forms of workplace artificial intelligence are impacting employment futures and family mobilities. David also recently authored a book called Transit Life, which we'll also discuss a little later on the podcast. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks, Jess. David, can you give the listeners a, an overview of, of your background? Sure. So I'm a, I'm a cultural geographer uh, and my university education was all in, in geography. And so that means that I'm really interested in thinking about the relationship between people and place. And, and I suppose going beyond some of the more um, hard-edged ways of understanding human behaviour. So I'm really interested in thinking about uh, how people relate to place in, in maybe more complex ways. So how things like memory and anticipation uh, become really significant. Your book, Transit Life, why the subject and why the topic? <laughs> sure. I think, so I started this uh, uh, project um, about five or six years ago now, and I was becoming really frustrated with the way that so much of what has been written about commuting and about transport in the city was written from, I suppose, quite a quite a, a hard-edged perspective. Um, and it, it tended to reduce the commute to just a case of getting from A to B. And from my own commutes, I, I guess I, I, I sort of scratched my head and I thought, well, surely surely there's more going on than just that, than just the movement of people from A to B. There's a whole world in there that really hasn't been, uh, that hasn't been looked at and hasn't been appreciated. Uh, and so I wanted to scratch beneath the surface and, and really kind of get into uh, uh, and understand the nuances and complexities of what's going on in the commute. Your book, uh, David, is very f- fascinating. I-, I found so many new perspectives on the commute that I never thought. I mean, like you said, I just thought the hard engineering, the time, the travel types and, and, and those sort of things. But there's so many aspects to the commute. That's right. And I think, so I started out from this this idea that um, we know a lot of statistics about the commute. We know a lot of um, where, about where people are traveling from and to modes of transport, that sort of thing. But if we just focus on the statistics, if we just focus on those brute numbers, we get this idea that the commute is, a, is an unchanging space, is a zone of life where nothing really changes. So I zoomed in on one particular city, I zoomed in on Sydney, and the statistics for Sydney suggest that um, the modal split between different modes of transport has remained relatively similar uh, over over many, many years. And so, again, this gives the impression that this is a zone where nothing is changing. And so my research set out to really counter that view, to try and find out how this is a zone where all kinds of subtle but powerful transformations are actually taking place. How did you research the commute? Now, how many how many hours or how many days and months did you spend commuting on trains and trams and buses? <laughs> so, I the research took uh, took about five years to do. <laughs> and, and as I say, it was based in Sydney. I didn't live all of that time in Sydney. I was actually based in Canberra at the time, and my own commute. Uh, was this gorgeous 15-minute bike ride around the lake. So I felt a little bit uh, gratuitous uh, heading up to Sydney every every few months to spend, say, a month uh, in traffic and, and talking to people. Uh, but it certainly gave me, gave me a, a very, very different perspective. 
In in terms of the people I talked to, I talked to 53 commuters um, uh, for whom uh, who travelled by a variety of different uh, modes of transport. So I, I I cast the net wide and I looked at car people who tra- who travel by car, train, bus, who walk, who cycle, and of course many people take a combination of those. And so. I wasn't really interested in getting vast numbers of people to talk to me, but I wanted to get a small selection of, of people and really drill down and get into the, the, the kind of depth and richness of their specific experiences. Uh, David, how is the commute changing us? It's changing us in all kinds of ways. Um, so many of the people that I talk to uh, are long-time commuters, so people that have commuted for um, 10, 20 years. And what I was really interested in doing was getting people to reflect on how exactly their commute has changed them over the time. So, for example, something like family relationships. I talked to, uh, there was a very poignant moment in one of my interviews with someone who travels for four hours a day from the cent- central coast into into Sydney, and she, she looked at me and paused and said, you know, uh, I, I've just stopped this commute because I, it was getting to me. I wanted to spend time with my teenage son, but my, my husband, his father, uh, he's still doing the commute, and... You know, he wasn't there for my son, for our son during, um, you know, during the time he was growing up. And, and she said, you know, now they're the two of those are, are, are much less close. They're less, you know, uh, you know, less close to each other than, than, than she was with him. And so, you know, she was putting the commute down to the fact that, you know, that, that, her, that her husband and, and son were, you know, were, were not. Well, well, David, that resonates with me because I used to commute an hour and 40 minutes mm. from country Victoria to the Melbourne CBD. And I did that for 11 years and it just completely wears you down. Was that every day? Most most days, sort of nine days out of 10. Mm. But, you know, you, you leave in the dark, you get home in the dark uh, you're tired. Mm. You're health-wise, you're sitting down all the time. Um, and it's uh, reading your book, a lot of the field work, a lot of the comments, I could much ap- very appreciate the, the, the bad things of the commute. Mm. And I think as well it's that, it's that material experience of being in transit. As you say, it's the darkness, never seeing your house in light in the winter. It's being buffeted by rain and wind when you get out of the car and have to walk 100 metres to the platform. And again, many of the commuters that I talked to who did slightly longer commutes um, would really bemoan their, their, longer, their longer journeys. However, at the same time, they were really philosophical uh, in the way that they thought and reflected on the commute. So, it's a trade That's right, yeah. So if it, they might be on the move for, say, three, four hours a day, but at the same time, they really made that time work for them. And this was particularly the case for people who travelled by train. Um, you know, they made sure that they uh, that it was a, either a time where they could be productive, say on the on the way to work, getting ready for meetings, getting you know doing things that maybe uh, the office is less conducive for. You know, people would say, "Oh, it's so lovely to not be in email contact during the commute, so I can actually sit and read things that I need to read." And on the way home, it was generally a space where they would zone out and just relax. So for a lot of people, this time was a really important transition time. So very few people actually. Uh, in fact, only I think one person said they, they would like to be teleported to work. Everyone else <laughs> said, actually, this is re- I, d- I don't want to get rid of my commute. I really need this time. Mm-hmm. And that probably goes to this idea of flexible working arrangements and um, workplaces, allowing people to start and finish at different times and um, having laptops, having Wi-Fi on trains, which... I think we struggle with here in Victoria. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting idea, isn't it, that you can actually build in that time into your everyday 
work. That's right, and I, th- I think I think your point is really important because it reminds us that it's um, that it's not just say government and transport providers who are responsible for making this time um, more palatable. It's actually there's a lot of different. Uh, institutions and organizations that have responsibility for making the commute better and so workplaces and employers are exactly one of those and so quite a few people I talked to said that uh, and people whose commute even longer commutes worked for them were people who had negotiated um, flexible working hours who had agreed with that whose employer had agreed with them that actually the time of their commute could be time that was classed as work time uh, and so, yeah, this made a real difference to people. And so I think it is a bit of a wake-up call to employers to, to take these issues seriously because they can have a really dramatic impact on people's well-being. In terms of the, the transit space, David, there doesn't seem to be a lot of design attention. To, I'm not just talking to train stations. I mean, in Singapore and in Japan, the train stations are quite beautiful mm-hmm. and, and they're attractive spaces to be in. Now, some of our more recent ones are good, but there seems to be a, not a lot of effort made in, to making public transport attractive and also the transit zones along roads. Mm. It's a really interesting point. I think that we spend a lot of time uh, in the architecture space, for example, talking about how to design beautiful communities and beautiful spaces to live. And, you know, we have similar debates around workplaces, but the the, the spaces between those those corridors between um, the places that we dwell in um, are as exactly you say are, are equally significant in terms of making us feel great or, or not so great about ourselves and so the design of the of these spaces really matters so people reflected on uh, even things like the quality and comfort of seats for example on trains you know these things that make us feel uh, can really change the way that we feel these things are really significant and as you say stations are really uh, important as well it's a two-way thing isn't it i mean the, there's the community the authorities who design these spaces and you're a i mean i hate being called a customer when i catch a train i'm a passenger you know and that they think about my uh, comfort and enjoyment as well. Uh, so you're talking about like a, a transit design, almost specialty. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was really struck. I moved to Melbourne um, a year and a half ago, and I was really struck by how much, for example, I know there's a kind of politics around this as well, but how uh, the motorways uh, have lots of public artwork on the side. And, and I can imagine a lot of the debates in the media at the time would have been around, you know, this is frivolous, this is just a waste of money. And I think a lot of the time uh, we hear, a lot of the time it's, it's very easy to uh, to be critical of the of the sort of aesthetic aesthetics of spaces you know where investment has been made in in the in the kind of look and feel of the space as being frivolous you know it's 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 superfluous to the to the actual function of the space but i think the aesthetics are absolutely integral to the function of the space. And I think that's a really important point. And going back to the train platforms, for example, I guess the argument could also be made that you shouldn't have to spend more than five, ten minutes at a train platform because the public transport should be efficient enough that you're not spending more than a couple of minutes there waiting for a train. So perhaps that's the counter-argument to that as well. It's, that's, it, that is very, very true. And I think I talk to many people who, um, for whom it's the, the experience of waiting, the experience of being interrupted uh, or a journey stalling was really frustrating. So even things like... Um, traffic lights being more frustrating than roundabouts. You know, you might get to work at the same time, but it's that sense of uh, of something in the city, of infrastructure or, uh, you know, the powers that be somehow impeding you. And, and, and it's true, that really, that does get to people. 
Thank you to Song Bowden Planners, who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. And finally, thank you to Salt Traffic and Waste Engineering, who are a highly skilled group of professionals under the direction of the wonderful Joe Garrity. Details also on our website. David, just taking up, going back on a point, that bringing public art from the galleries to the roadways or those transit spaces, I mean, it seems like it's time for a shift to get things out of the galleries and... Hmm? I think it's a, it's a really interesting point. Transit art. Yeah, look, I, I mean, you know, I'm just thinking of the trams around Melbourne. There's, there's very often um, special trams that are, you know... Um, you know, art trams, I know in other cities around the world, there, there's all sorts of other interventions in those spaces, you know, poetry in the tube, that London have done that for a long, long time. So it's little things like that that can make people feel differently. Last time I was in London, there's this new initiative where un, where all tube stations think their manager has got a whiteboard and they write sort of humorous quips uh, every day and every day is a new one. And, you know, these are really, really small things, but they can make people feel differently about maybe how that place, how the transport company is caring for them. In Japan, each train station has its own little tune. Own little, so when the announcements come on, it's different in every place. And, and some of that relate to historical things in those places. But um, that's, I mean, it's so interesting. It comes back to what you were saying about even just how we're addressed as either customers or passengers. You know, you were saying it, it, it completely changes, well, not completely, but it really, it does have a subtle but powerful impact on your sense of relating to the transport provider. I'm, I'm the same. I, I really despise being called a, a customer. It, it feels, <laughs> it, I, I mean, call me a cynic, but it, it, it just... Well, you're a captive customer. And that's mm. what I, there's no choice in a lot of these things. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Did you find on the transit options that you're looking at that there were communities that had formed over a long period of time? It's, it's really interesting. I think when I started out the project, I was really dying to find the, the, the carriage where, I don't know, there was a, a group of card-playing people, yeah. you know, the, that had been there for years and years. And sadly, I didn't find uh, that, that <laughs> ideal community. But at the same time, what I did find is that there are, there are many spaces uh, where these these communities where, where a sense of community really does exist and again it was for longer distance travelers who get the same train every day who sit in the same carriage who sit in the same seats and whilst people are not talking to each other necessarily i mean people have got a right to be left alone in public i guess um, there was people reflected on you know we make sure that people don't sleep past their stop for example and so there's there is that sense of responsibility there is that sense of people looking out for each other you know oh such and such wasn't there the other day um, one woman said, you know, we, even though we don't talk to each other, we will have a little talk on the platform before. Everyone knows what, what everyone else does at weekends. So there is that sense of, of, of community, even though it's maybe not apparent if, say, you or I were getting on and, and sat down. So I think that's a really in, interesting uh, and important thing to kind of take away, that this is a space of community. Uh, it just may not be obvious. Uh, David, average commuting times have risen. Should we despair at this? It's a good question that so much policy is devoted to reducing traveling time. You know, we hear the, the things such as the 20 minute city lauded in policy. And I think there are good reasons, obviously, for 
for for considering that. But I think again, it comes back to what you were saying about spaces. You know, what what if we were, what if we were less, uh, what, what if we were. What if we took less time uh, to focusing in terms of policy on travel time and more time thinking about designing better spaces, designing spaces where people can work? For example, you know the the Bendigo or Ballarat commute into into Melbourne. What if we were to take seriously designing train carriages where people could actually work? In in Germany, they design carriages where there are individual booths for for doing office work, things like that. Um, there are all kinds of ways that, um, that that we can make these commutes better, and it's not just necessarily about reducing travel time. Whose responsibility is that, David? I mean, to make, to facilitate what you're suggesting? Yeah, it's it's a difficult one because I think, um, so one whole chapter of this book is devoted to thinking about um, infrastructure investment and, um, and government policy around transport. And time and time again, people were frustrated by the underdone nature of infrastructure. And part of that is that infrastructure takes an awful lot of time to develop. You know, we're thinking about uh, our city here, the, uh, the the metro train tunnel through the city centre. Uh, someone said to me the other day, you know, I'm really looking forward to that opening next year. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's such a shame because it's going to be 20, you know, 24, 5, 6, something like that. Um, and so, I, and, I, and I think this, the, the problem with that is that the, the timeframes that, that infrastructure takes to develop uh, is really at odds with people's experiential times. You know, the times that the, the sorts of durations that, that are maybe more meaningful in, in terms of uh, their day-to-day travel, obviously, but even just their, you know, what they're going to do over the next few years. You know, the time of developing infrastructures to a lot of people is just is 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 outside the realm of of their horizon of experience, and so. I think we can do things that um, uh, we can we can do all sorts of things that um, you know. Yes, we do that, but we can also do much more short-term fixes that actually uh, have meaningful impacts. And so, a lot of people in Sydney were talking about how even things such as you know step-free access to platforms, so people who have got uh, limited mobility or kind of mobility issues, um, you know, these are things that don't take a huge amount of investment. They don't take a huge amount of uh, or kind of years of planning, but they do have really important material impacts on people's lives. So maybe maybe kind of walking away or less focus on those legacy kind of grand plan schemes that governments love and more time on those little incremental things, you know, sorting out a traffic light sequence that, that really bugs people, sorting out, a, you know, a station that really, you know, has seen better, better days. These things that, you know, that, that maybe can't be championed and, and kind of shouted loudly about in policy settings, but actually do have a massive difference. Yeah. And then what about big data? How is that affecting what we know about commuting and um, how will that influence commuting in the, in the future? It's an interesting one. And, and I suppose partly that I was the research that I did took place between 20, um, 2011 and 2015. Uh, the conversations around big data were really only just sort of in their infancy at the time. Um, I know it's something that transport companies uh, are are increasingly attuned to. So, you know, with the tra- travel cards, the Mikey, Opal, that sort of thing, um, you know, they, they claim to have the data now and they, they can optimise, uh, to use a favourite word, their services accordingly. Um, but I think, um, you know, I, th- I think, again, the issue with that is that we reduce the richness and complexity of the experience of the commute to brute numbers. Um, so numbers can do do certain things, but they can't tell us everything. And that's why I think that uh, a qualitative approach uh, is really important for, for getting at that nuance and complexity. And how do we capture that, do you 
Uh, I think just talking to people. I think talking to people, um, you know, there are there are many people working in the qualitative space who do really interesting experiments with people. So actually traffic al along with people, um, you know, so actually their journey, uh, traveling along with, with them on their commute, for example, and, and getting them to point out, you know, what don't you like? What do you like? You know, asking someone on the move is very different to sitting uh, in a room and asking, asking people. So, you know, there are all kinds of, of ways that we can actually um, get a richer appreciation. New, new, te new techniques with new technology, I think, to, to, to gather that information, I think. The old, the old traditional sit down with a survey paper, mm. um, seeing what people uh, access on, on their, their internet and things like that, that tells you a lot of things about what people are actually doing rather than what they want to tell surveyors. Mm. Well, a lot of my colleagues are using things like GoPro cameras and getting, you know, saying, you know, go, go out with you on your commute and, and take this camera for, for a day or even a week and then, you know, we'll sit back uh, together and you can, we, can, we can take me through your journey. Um, so there are really, there are interesting and novel ways that we can actually get at this information. Long commutes, particularly road commutes, build a sense of frustration with society and alienation. Do you think that that's? I mean, I think people change dramatically when they sit in a car <laughs> and start getting very angry. Incidents of road rage. Um, I'm like, I've seen other people drive cars. I mean, I was a victim of road rage last week. You know, a guy got out and abused me because why can't you move lanes? I couldn't move lanes, but I could just sense his anger and I'm like yeah, I yeah. can't do anything you know I mean this is it I think the commute's a fascinating thing because it's a zone where you know generally mild-mannered people like ourselves uh, you know uh, we kind of push to our limits sometimes I mean even this morning coming in today uh, I was sitting on the tram and there was this older guy in front of me who just had this persistent sniff uh, <laughs> every 10 minutes it was a and 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 I, re I realized I was you know I was well, I wasn't close to yelling at him but there was you know there was part of me that thought I just want to I actually do want to explode this is really annoying me so I think what and certainly you know there's no end of, of, of stories in, in my book that attest that you know it's not just me it's a lot of other people but I think what this tells us is that it's a space where we're actually kind of negotiating with each other you know it's a, it is a space of sociality coming back to that point about you know these these traveling communities um, and certainly sitting in cars where we're, we're feeling those stresses I think it's a, it's a shared thing as well I talked to drive time presenters um, you know on radio in, in Sydney and they said yeah you know they one of the things about their show that, that you know, this one guy I talked to, he said, you know, it's that sense that a lot of people that I'm talking, that, that, that are listening are stuck in traffic. And so a lot of the stories are about trying to kind of bring people together in interesting ways. So, yeah, again, it's subtle, but it's, it's powerful just making people feel that little bit more connected. It's that sense of civility. David, you mentioned going to Japan in October. One of the things on the trains there is you're encouraged not to use your phone. So no one uses phones on trains. Right? So there's these sort of enforced sense of codes of practice. How do they encourage that? It comes over the, the speakers. You know, if, if you have to use your phone, go to the end of the carriage. And no one uses their phone. No one leaves rubbish. You know? So it's that their society is very different to ours, which is uh, people will do what they can to... They don't care, basically. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. Again, in, in, in Sydney, when I was doing this project, they, they, were having, they had a behavioural campaign. It was called Beastly Behaviours. And so they profiled a series of, uh, you know, little kind of ca cartoon bugs, you know, the, the, the hogger, the, the shouter. And, you know, these are all designed, I think it's in academic circles, it's called mundane governance. You know, it's, it's the, those little sort of 
nudge exactly, yeah, to try and sort of uh, shape people's behaviors in, in subtle, uh, in subtle but, yeah, but powerful ways. But again, people have different expectations. People have different tolerances. And so it's, it is a space where that difference is worked out, I suppose. And on the flip side with Japan, they have female-only carriages. So that, that points to another problem they've got over there in crowded. So it's not all rosy. So there is pink carriages. Mm, that's right. Which, which dumb foreigners get into sometimes by mm. mistake. But I think, I think what your point also raises is that, um, you know, when we talk about individual cities, they're not isolated, they're not in a bubble. So again, many of my participants talked about their experiences of travel in other cities around the world. And then they would come back and then they would suddenly experience uh, and perceive the transport system in Sydney in a really, really different light. You know, suddenly things that had not irked them previously were felt with a real discomfort. And so, you know, that's that's another thing to take really seriously here, that, you know, experiences such as yours and coming back here, that will have shaped you in some sort of way. You know, why aren't we doing that? Why, why aren't people behaving better here? Mm. What about your background? Did you grow up commuting in the UK as a kid? I I had a when I went to to, um, to high school I had a long commute uh, by bus and I had to leave at seven in the morning and I would get to college at sort of half eight in the in the in the morning so it was an hour and a half and then an hour and a half back and uh, so yeah I guess I guess travel to to a certain extent has kind of um, folded into the way that I. Yeah, I think maybe maybe a lot of my interest in this space is is formed through through those personal experiences for sure. Yeah, we're all shaped by our experiences, Jess. Um, <laughs> David, favorite wh- question: What are the next big things to challenge, improve, or change the commute? Do you think? Ooh, that's a, that's a big question. I think a lot of um, a lot of energy is being devoted at the moment uh, to thinking about uh, and certainly spruiking the virtues of, autom- of autonomous vehicles. I mean, we hear that time and time again that these are going to be the saviors uh, of our cities. You know, they're going to bust congestion. It's going to be about you know, using up latent capacity in the city. But actually, a lot of transport planners uh, say that, you know, this is actually ridiculous and that actually this is just going to increase congestion. We're going to have vehicles that are roaming the streets looking for, you know, touting for passengers that are not carrying anyone. It's actually just going to increase um, congestion. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I'm very, very suspicious about, um, well, in part about who those uh, where those debates are being a bit are coming from. A lot of this is coming from Silicon Valley tech companies who, you know, basically just want to make a buck. Uh, and I think that it's it it would be it's it's uh, concerning that transport policy uh, could potentially be hijacked by the interests of these you know huge corporations that really don't have the issues or you know don't have the the interests of of everyday commuters uh, at heart. So. Uh, so I think for in terms of the future of commuting, I actually think that mass transport is going to is absolutely still going to be part of the equation. Our cities are growing. The most efficient way of transporting people from A to B is still in uh, in mass transport. So I think for me, it comes back to the, some of the things that we've been talking about. You know, how do you design spaces that make people feel better about that time? You know, we are going to be commuting still in the future. Um, we're going to be commuting together. And even some of the autonomous vehicle arguments uh, are about shared mobility services. You know, we've got things like uh, Uber, Uber Pool that's that's just started, and again, it's 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 about uh, it's it's about being with others in transit spaces. So it comes back to all those things about how do you you know how do you how do we share space? How do we share these intimate capsule spaces with other people? With protocols. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. And what about autonomous um, public transport? 
Well, this is, is that... some, this, yeah, this is something that's be, certainly been trialled uh, and, and uh, is, is kind of in development. Uh, I think that, well, there's a lot of, there's quite a few systems around the world that are already autonomous. I mean, in Singapore, I've been on them. Yeah, mm. exactly. Docklands Light Railway in London hasn't had drivers for well since it started, and so you know this is something that uh, that they that, that is happening. Um, but again, I think there's implications to think about. So you know, take a take a driver off the bus. Um, you know, who's going to be the who, who's going to be the person that enforces civility? Um, you know, are we going? And and of course, there's employment issues there as well, which which you know, transport employs thousands of people yeah, in, in in this city millions of people around the world so there are more responsibilities than just you know making uh making these spaces more more high-tech and more wizzy um there's a, there's responsibilities to to you know to employ people as well david what are the, some of the metrics we can use to assess the quality of commuting life mm. So it's a it's a very good question, uh, and and again, I, I suppose I kind of underscore the fact that um, metrics was precisely you know kind of what my book was trying to um, question or trying to kind of um, uh, at least um, uh, you know put into some relief. But again, I think we we become really obsessed with travel time. We become really obsessed with commuting numbers. Are there other numbers that we can use to evaluate satisfaction rating? That's right, comfort. Um, you know, I think there are other things, you know, if we want to measure and governments love to measure, uh, transport companies love to measure, are there other numbers that we could that we could get? And I think some of those more experiential uh, numbers um, should be part of the mix and, n- and not as a kind of cutesy, fluffy aside, but as something that uh, that we should actually really take seriously as much. I as think it's about respect, isn't it? Respect for the passenger, respect for the car commuter, whatever. It's just something we don't have when we talk about these policies or mm. practices, is it fair? Mm. I think so. I think so. I think, and again, for me as a cultural geographer, cities are about how we learn to get on with respect and appreciate difference and diversity in all its permutations. And so the commute, again, is somewhere, is, is a place where those both aggressions and frustrations, but also those points of responsibility and care for each other actually do come out. Uh, and what surprised you about your research into transit life? I think the thing that really surprised me more than anything else was that I talked to 53 people and everyone had a, a different story. You know, yes, there were similarities. There were similar gripes. There were things that people would prefer. There would be things that people really were frustrated by. But everyone had a really unique story about how uh, their commute was touching them, whether it was about... Um, you know whether it was about their family or whether it was about how it impacts on work, how they how they how they change the, you know their their kind of travel time. Um, everyone has a story, um, and I think it comes back to that thing that we were talking about earlier. N- only one person said that they would like to be teleported to work. I was expecting everyone at the start to say, absolutely. You know, I don't. My travel time is 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 you know reduced at all costs. And so, yeah, for me, the biggest surprise was that, that no one wanted to, uh, you know, apart from one, wanted to get rid of their, their commute. In fact, one lady even said that she reduced the travel time of her commute uh, and, um, you know, significantly. And she rocked up at work in her car and she actually had to sit in her car for about five minutes because she'd arrived too early, in her words. Um, so I think that tells us something. <laughs> um, and David, what message would you like to give to our... Uh, our listeners, I guess, a town planning base normally, but yeah, look, yeah any I, particular message? I, I think that um, experience matters and, and experience changes people. And I think just really, 
you know, if we lose sight of that, we lose sight of the whole business of what a city is about and, and kind of why we're doing any of this. I mean, I, I think that's, you know, I, I finished the book saying, you know, what what use is it, re- you know, investing in new transport infrastructures or reducing the travel time if we don't actually take seriously, um, you know, why on earth we're doing these things in the first place? You know, what is, what, what is the experience of doing this? So, yeah, experience all the way. And any ideas for future research or perhaps uh, the next well, book? interesting you mention that. Um, <laughs> I'm doing a project at the moment that's looking at um, super long distance commutes. So um, probably used to all the debates around FIFO taking place in the news a few years ago. Um, so a couple of colleagues and I have been talking to people who uh, do all kinds of crazy commutes. So, you know, people that travel. Um, you know, between countries, people that travel for, you know, five hours um, and then and, and work away. Uh, so trying to find out the sort of trials and tribulations of these people. So it's taking this to the next level. And David, you lecture at Melbourne Uni. What do you try to impart in your students? Well, very briefly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I try and encourage my students to um, to really kind of again, get inside that human complexity, you know, think, trying to think about the relationship between people and place in ways that go beyond making broad brush assertions, you know, uh, and go, go beyond abstractions. Um, you know, how could, how can we think about these spaces differently? There's always wiggle room. So even in the most constrained situation, even when we're feeling that there's nothing that can be done, there's always something that can be done. Now, in terms of recommendations, how do you um, relax, unwind? Do you have any recommendations for books or publications that our listeners that might be interested in? Ah, oh, that's, that's a good question. Or movies or, or, movies, <laughs> yeah. or podcasts. Okay, it can't be Blade Runner, though. Oh, well, I, saw Heredi- <laughs> I saw Hereditary at the weekend uh, and I saw it on my own at the cinema, which was a very bad move. I, I needed someone to hold on to. It was terrifying. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was I, I really enjoyed that. Um, to, to unwind, I, I go bushwalking, actually. And so I, but again, it comes back to travel, actually, in a funny way. I think one of the things that frustrates me a bit about Melbourne is that I live in, this, in, in the inner city, and so it takes an hour to get out any direction to actually get into the bush. And so uh, if I could make that, if I could actually reduce the travel time of that, I would actually be quite pleased. Thank you, David. And uh, I'd urge our listeners to have a look at transit uh Life. It's a um, very interesting read. I, I discovered all sorts of new things. And um, thank you very much, David. And thank you, Jess and Zach, as well. And also, I'd like to thank the Urban Broadcast Collective, which we're now a part of. It's a magnificent uh, collective effort of podcasts, of Australian podcasts, and some from the US. It's great to be part of that. And also, thanks to the professional organisations, the Planning Institute of Australia and VPLA, for their support to us. Thanks, thanks again, Jess. Thanks, Dave.